Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. Hello, everyone. Meet our question asker, Rosie. My name is Rosie Chase, and I live in Huntington, Vermont. And I'm a public defender for the state of Vermont, and I practice out of Franklin County. So people who can't afford a lawyer, you are their lawyer. That's right. For her work as a public defender, Rosie spends a lot of time in places that most Vermonters never go, correctional facilities. I do. Um, I would say at least approximately once a week. Meeting with clients. Doing initial interviews, um, perhaps preparing for a sentencing. But yeah, I spend a lot of time in the Vermont jails. Here's how Rosie describes her situation. I'm a white female who was born and raised in New England, practicing criminal defense in one of the whitest states in the country. And yet, Rosie is concerned because the demographics in Vermont's criminal justice system do not match Vermont as a whole. When I walk into the Northwest State Correctional Facility and I see the lines of black men lined up waiting to go into the mess hall, I know that something's wrong. And I don't think that the public is aware of it in Vermont. Maybe. But racial disparity in the broader system isn't exactly a secret. This is not just anecdote. This is not just barbershop talk. A growing body of research shows that people of color are more likely to be stopped, frisked, questioned, charged, detained. President Obama said this at an NAACP convention in 2015. African Americans are more likely to be arrested. They are more likely to be sentenced to more time for the same crime. Our question asker Rosie is wondering why this is happening in Vermont and how we compare to the rest of the country. I should say, we didn't know when we got Rosie's question that she's a public defender. But when we put it in a public voting round, which is where you all pick the winning question, it won decisively. So here we are. I think we think of ourselves as this isolated, progressive state um, that does a pretty good job looking out for human rights. And and I think that there's a grave injustice being committed. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. I'm Angela Evansy. This show is powered by you and your curiosity. Every month you tell us what question about Vermont you want us to answer. This month, Why are there so many African-Americans incarcerated in Vermont? And is the rate higher here in Vermont than most other states? Overall, Vermont has one of the lowest incarceration rates in the country, but it has one of the highest rates of African-American incarceration. So why is that? Spoiler alert, this is a two-part question with a complicated, gazillion-part answer. As always, we've done our best. We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund. Welcome. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. 
Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. We're going to take the second part of Rosie's question first, about the rate of African-American incarceration here. Is the rate higher here in Vermont than most other states? Short answer, yes. So, you know, it's, it's an outlier for sure. This is Ashley Nellis. I'm a senior research analyst at The Sentencing Project. The Sentencing Project is a research and advocacy group in Washington, D.C. And Ashley Nellis is the author of a 2016 report called The Color of Justice, Racial, and Ethnic Disparity in State Prisons. So how does Vermont measure up? Right. Um, So in Vermont, it actually has the highest rate in the country of adult black male incarceration. And it has the third highest rate of incarceration for African-Americans overall. The third highest rate of incarceration for African-Americans in the country, according to Ashley's report. Vermont was just behind Wisconsin and Oklahoma. Here are some other ways to wrap your head around the numbers. You can compare Vermont to the rest of the country. Nationally, the ratio is about 5 to 1 black-white incarceration. And in Vermont, it's more than 10 to 1. Or you can think in terms of our state's population. Only 1% of the population in Vermont is African-American, but 11% of its prison population is black. Now, while we were reporting this episode, Vermont's Department of Corrections published newer numbers from 2017. Those show a small decrease in the percentage of Black inmates in Vermont, from 11% down to 8.5%. But when Ashley ran the numbers in 2016, Vermont's ratio of Black-white incarceration was higher than Massachusetts, Maine, and New Hampshire. Yeah, the data in Vermont is striking because the black incarceration is so much higher uh, than the national average and of its neighboring states. So it's, it is very curious. What the Sentencing Project report doesn't tell us is where these African-American inmates are from. How many are Vermont residents versus those who are arrested while visiting or passing through? That's the subject of ongoing research, and we'll get back to it later on. Uh, Hi, it's uh, attorney Amy Davis. I'm calling to speak with my client, Corey Jones. Could you please hold just one second? Thank you. Hey, Corey. Hey. Hey, it's Amy. Um, They wouldn't let Angela into the facility, so we're sitting outside in my car. (laughs) I want to do the interview over the phone. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Hey, Corey, it's Angela. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you. Sorry about all the background noise, but there's a lot of people. Corey Jones is serving time in Northern State Correctional Facility in Newport. We're talking over Bluetooth in Amy Davis's Subaru. You know, I've worked with him for, I don't know, Corey, what, two years now? Corey is serving up to three years for distributing $40 worth of heroin. He was arrested in St. Johnsbury in 2016 as part of a big series of controlled buys, basically sting operations. He maintains his innocence. Well, I had 
had my Supreme Court thing today, too. I don't know if, if you... You wouldn't hear anything about that, would you, Amy? Oh, you had your argument today? Yes. Did you get to go? No. Oh, shocker. Um, but no... I didn't, didn't get to go, didn't get to participate by phone or nothing. Yeah. And good afternoon again. Thank you all very much. Please be seated. Good afternoon, Your Honors. The matter before the court this afternoon is a case entitled State of Vermont versus Jones. Docket the Vermont Defender General's Office has appealed Corey Jones' case to the Vermont Supreme Court, arguing that the jury convicted him based on insufficient evidence. The attorney arguing the case, a woman named Dawn Matthews, also suggested there was bias involved. Corey is black. In light of the statistics and our continuing history of racism, both in this country and in this state, a judge has to be especially alert in a drug case with very weak facts. Don Matthews' argument was basically implicit bias 101. It's not just judges, it's prosecutors, it's defense attorneys, it's courtroom staff, it's jurors, it's everybody that has this this kind of shorthand that works in our brains where we have a tendency to associate people of color with crime without even realizing that we're doing it. I've had nothing but problems with St. Johnsbury. Corey Jones says he experienced more than bias almost as soon as he got to St. Johnsbury in 2013. He'd moved from Florida to be near his sister in Danville, and he was looking for a job and apartment in town. He says someone on the street called him the N-word, and he ended up getting in a fight, and then on law enforcement's radar. I don't know. It just went from there. And then it... Corey mentions one instance outside of Dunkin' Donuts. His misdemeanor charges and convictions piled up. Simple assault, violating conditions of release, violating a trespass notice. Headlines in the local paper would refer to him by name, like a person of infamy. Now, on paper, I look like some menace. <laughs> the St. Johnsbury, and I just don't feel that uh, clear representation of who I am. And I have, I've been look, 43 years old, I've got more charges in, in, in Vermont in a year that I've been on the street than I had my whole life in, in Florida. I don't know. I just don't feel like this state. I feel like there's some kind of stigmatism or some kind of stereotype up here because it's not a very racially diverse state. But uh, had I known that, I didn't have, I didn't like look it up and see that this state's 93.3% white, and I want to come up here and start with my life over. I didn't look at that situation. I didn't think it would be a situation. I'm biracial as it is. My mother's white, my, my father's black, and they've been together my whole life. Now, Corey is one person living in one part of Vermont. We can't extrapolate his experience out into an answer to Rosie's question. But it's worth noting that our state is very much grappling with the presence of straight-up racism here. Today, in 2018. I had a home invasion vandalism, even the woods near my house where we go and walk frequently as a family had swaps because they painted all over the trees there. You might have heard about Kaya Morris. 
She was the only African-American woman serving in the Vermont legislature until she resigned in September. In August, she told VPR she'd been the target of hate online and in her daily life for more than a year. Meanwhile, Vermont's lack of diversity has become a punchline. No immigrants, no minorities. This was a recent Saturday Night Live skit that spoofed a neo-Confederate meeting. An agrarian community where everyone lives in harmony because every single person is white. Yes, sir. Yeah, I know that place. That sounds like Vermont. (laughs) That didn't go over super well here. This stuff wasn't about incarceration specifically. But even an academic who studies race and punishment took one look at Vermont's numbers and made a pretty blunt observation. You know, you have a low rate of incarceration overall, right, compared to Texas and other places. But you have a very high rate of incarceration for African-Americans. So, yeah, that, that would say relative to other places, even Texas, that Vermont's just more racist. John Eason is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Wisconsin, and before that, Texas A&M University. To be fair, he's never been to Vermont, but it's striking that this was his expert opinion. That's something that needs to be fixed in the culture there. So what is it about Vermont? That's the question I have. It's the same question Rosie has. And as it turns out, it's a question that pretty much everyone in Vermont government and the criminal justice system has too. My colleague John Dillon is going to pick it up here. In some ways, it's the question of the moment in Vermont, but the answer is elusive. Part of the reason, according to Professor Eason, is that there's a lack of research into rural incarceration writ large. Rural places are often overlooked and understudied. Eason has studied black versus white incarceration in one rural state, Arkansas. And what we find is that rural towns and counties have a higher disproportionate rate of incarceration. That means rural places are more punitive for black people in Arkansas. And I think that pattern should hold, but it's difficult to get data on rural places. Eason says this is because most big research universities are in cities, and there's not much funding available to study rural places. We have a dearth, a complete absence of information nearly on what's going on in rural communities. And in the past few years, Vermont has woken up to this reality. So let's talk about a few other issues while we have the time here, Commissioner Menard. And Back in August, our colleague Jane Lindholm put Rosie's question to the Commissioner of Vermont's Department of Corrections, Lisa Menard. Here's how Menard answered. That's accurate. Vermont has a disproportionate number of African-Americans incarcerated. The why is, um, that's not a, a question I can answer. I can say that there are certainly a number of groups looking at this. The Vermont State Police has done significant work in looking at their arrest practices and making uh, – they have a lot of data about race. Uh, the UVM did some research regarding that. We're looking at our own practices once somebody is incarcerated around critical decision points and how those may look. So Menard didn't have the answer, but she referenced the studies and panels galore that have been looking at this issue, far beyond just corrections. Some have examined the various points of contact that people have with the criminal justice system long before they end up in prison, places where racial bias could occur. (laughs) 
There's the initial interaction with police. Maybe it's a 911 call or a traffic stop. For the past few years, Stephanie Seguino of the University of Vermont has been looking at traffic stops. And in a study released in early 2017, she found that black drivers are twice as likely to be arrested after a traffic stop than whites. The results should not be surprising to anybody. I think the, the real issue here is that Vermont has taken on the challenge of being self-aware and of trying to improve policing so that it fairly treats and supports all of the communities in our state. Meanwhile, the Vermont State Police has been looking at their own practices. The effort includes training, ongoing study of racial data on traffic stops and searches, and a strong emphasis on diversity hiring. And well before an officer is hired, the state police do a background check, including on the applicant's social media presence, to try to weed out people with racist attitudes or affiliations. The thought process being we get our members from society and all of the the implicit bias, explicit bias that they have, we want to make sure that we're looking into that before they put on this uniform and are going to represent the values that we believe would make a good state trooper. Lieutenant Gary Scott is Director of Fair and Impartial Policing at the State Police. He says he's the only state police officer in the country with that job title, and the unique position reflects the agency's years-long effort to be proactive to reduce bias. He says it's an ongoing process that everyone involved needs to work on. Education up front and making sure our members or whoever is the person that has the discretion is aware of all these cultural differences and can use that in a way to help guide their decisions of where cases can and cannot go. For now, let's get a different perspective from a person who's looked at race and justice issues for four decades. My name is Robert Appel. I've been uh, working in law since 1977. My first seven years was as an investigator, first in the public defender's office in Barrie. Robert Appel also served as executive director of the Vermont Human Rights Commission. More recently, he's been in private practice handling many cases dealing with bias and overt racism. People find me, but it's not unique. Uh, like I say, this is sort of a niche. I'm known for, for this. Um, yeah, I just see it day in and day out. Bias at play. From his decades of experience on the fault line of race and justice, Appel has a simple explanation for what's behind the high incarceration rates for African Americans. Black faces in white places. To me, that's it. You know, it's that fundamental. You don't fit. You're not one of us. You're up to no good. It all adds up, he says, but it starts with someone drawing suspicion because of the color of their skin. If you look like you don't fit, you're going to draw attention. If you're likely to have more police contacts, it's going to result in more arrests, convictions, and criminal history, you're likely to receive a, a harsher sanction the next go-around. So it's cumulative, whether it's in-state or out-of-state. Hang on to that idea of cumulative consequences, because it's going to come up later. The courts have reviewed cases where race unjustly led to an arrest or conviction. In 2016, the state Supreme Court threw out the conviction of a young black man named Shamal Alexander, who was arrested in Bennington for possessing heroin. The court ruled that the only reason Alexander was stopped was because of his race. It's sort of an archetypal example. Bennington Police Department assumed this black man was another black man who he wasn't. Interesting side note. Before Alexander's case got dismissed, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison 
which Appel says is a far longer sentence than normal for comparable possession cases. But Appel says things are getting better. He credits the Vermont State Police and the Vermont courts with paying more attention to bias issues. And he says he's learned one other fundamental thing after following cases like Alexander's for years. I've learned to trust what I hear. It's just too consistent from too many credible people. And I think it's hard for us, white people, and white men in particular, we, you know, the tendency is, it's not my experience, so it's easy to deny. You know, they're playing the race card. Well, they're not. You know, just because you don't experience doesn't mean it's not happening. And denying somebody else's experience, to me, is an ultimate, I won't say the ultimate, but an ultimate form of racism. People who end up in prison move through the criminal justice system. But Appel says it's not really a system. He calls it a non-system that relies on layers and layers of discretion as weighed through very human eyes and emotions. And much of that discretion rests with judges. Chief Superior Judge Brian Grierson greets me in the marbled floor lobby of the state Supreme Court in Montpelier. Hey, John. Hey. How are you? I was hoping you were going to call up and say, I've got the answer, Brian. We don't have to get together, but guess not, huh? No. Oh. Grierson has worked as a prosecutor, a defense lawyer, and in his own law office. He's been a judge since 2004 and chief superior judge since 2014. Grierson also still serves as a trial judge, in part because, as he puts it, he likes to, quote, knock the rust off and work hands-on in the court system. I've been down in Rutland and sat in the treatment court. I've sat in uh, Chelsea and Newport, down in Bennington. So I, I try to sit in as many different courts and as many different dockets as I can, and I still like it. So Grierson is a trial judge's trial judge who clearly reveres the law. He says when Vermont judges get together, they do talk about the issues that our question asker Rosie had. But when those judges gather, there are no African Americans in the room. We're, we're a pretty homogeneous group here, yeah. no question. And so when someone shows up in, you know, in handcuffs and they don't look like us, how do you tell what that does to you? I, I don't think there's an answer to that question. I, I don't, I mean, it certainly has never been a factor for me. We see a lot of people in handcuffs um, and the color of their skin doesn't make a difference. Grierson says he and others on the bench work hard to be colorblind in their courtrooms. He says the vast majority of criminal cases are settled with a plea bargain that includes a recommended sentence judges usually approve. And he says there may be many factors that go into sentences that affect the racial disparities in Vermont's prisons. For example, does the defendant have ties to the community? And what's their prior criminal history? The mistake is to compare one armed robbery, if you will, to another. It's an oversimplification without knowing, uh, you know, who that person is in front of you. And that's really what we, we try to ask in every case. Who are you? What brings you to this point? And all of those factors we've talked about come into play. Grierson says in some cases, Vermont judges may be dealing with bias carried over from another state. If you start the chain, just by way of example, of the stop-and-frisk policy that was prevalent in New York for some period of time. If that's violative of constitutional rights and that stop-and-frisk leads to an arrest, which leads to a detention, which leads to a conviction, 
by the time that person may be coming to Vermont, they're coming with that record uh, that may in itself be based in part on r- racial factors that aren't present in Vermont. Now, that stop and search was totally unconstitutional, but we don't find that out until the ACLU sues many years later. This is Robin Joy, the director of the Crime Research Group in Montpelier. She makes the same point as Judge Grierson. In the meantime, that person takes a plea because it's a lot easier, um, you know, gets that conviction. Now, that conviction can now be used in another courtroom, and this begins to compound some of the issue. And here, we get back to this idea of compounding consequences. Having an out-of-state record does put you at a disadvantage in Vermont's criminal justice system. This was one of the conclusions of yet another study, one that the Crime Research Group did for the legislature in 2015 on race and sentencing. So they were interested in whether or not race played a factor in the decision to incarcerate versus a community sanction uh, and in the length of time that people got sentenced to. Robin looked at four crimes assault, simple domestic, possession of cocaine, and then possession of marijuana, which was illegal at the time. And the result? We did not find evidence of a wide systemic bias uh, towards people of color in, in that study. No bias. But again, her team did find that having an out-of-state record would impact the sentence that someone got. So defendants who had prior record from out-of-state from out of state. were more likely to be sentenced and sentenced for a longer period yep. of time? Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. The study also noted that minority defendants were more likely than white defendants to have those out-of-state records. So can you draw a line there? Yeah. um, Well, that's part of what we're looking at in this next study. So you see how this goes. Studies beget studies. Incidentally, Corey Jones, the guy who's serving time in Newport, had an extensive out-of-state record when he was sentenced in Vermont, including several felonies. And so I think perhaps the next serious discussion that Vermont ought to have is what role do prior records have in, in perhaps compounding institutional racism and what role should they have when we look uh, at the sentencing decision or even the decision to arrest or to stop. Robin's next study is looking at something we mentioned earlier. The question of how many African-American inmates are residents of Vermont versus from out of state. Is the theory true that a lot of people are coming in from out of state to commit crimes? Uh, And if that's true, then okay, so we don't count those people to our population. Um, But what if it's a lot of white folks that are coming in from out of state to commit crimes? And according to that new report from the Department of Corrections, which we also mentioned earlier, just 1.6 percent of Vermont's prison population in 2017 were Black people from out of state. DOC also looked at sentence length, as well as frequency of drug charges and burglary charges. And they didn't find any racial disparity. I would just like to um, interject here that the, the sentence information is information that we really feel we need to do more work on. Monica Weber is the Administrative Services Director for the Vermont DOC. She told legislators at a recent hearing on the new study that it's just a starting point. Right, so um, it's something that we're realizing that uh, we have to understand how the sentence information is captured and then how we can take it out and analyze it. So in the beginning, it said this is preliminary. And I think that um, I just wanted to reiterate that. We want to pause for a minute 
because we've been talking about a lot of studies in this episode. And what we found in our reporting was that basically every study has a critic, someone who takes issue with the data or methodology. Robin Joy has issues with the sentencing project analysis. Vermont State Police had issues with Stephanie Seguino's research. The Vermont ACLU has major issues with the DOC's latest report. Christine Longmore has a theory as to why. You know, to be very frank and and honest and just, you know, real about the whole situation, most people, especially leaders of organizations like, you know, police departments or the Vermont State Police or the Commissioner of Public Safety, nobody wants to be labeled as racist. Christine has been working on racial justice issues in Vermont since she was in high school. It's sort of like the ultimate fear is to be called out or labeled as a racist or to be labeled as the leader of an organization that has racist practices. A game of social science hot potato. Christine experienced this very thing as the chair of the Attorney General's Racial Disparities in the Criminal and Juvenile Justice System Advisory Panel, one of two groups established last year to look at these issues. She and the vice chair, a guy named Mark Hughes, both quit the panel after they submitted a report about systemic racism that the panel didn't embrace. They weren't the only people of color in the group, but Christine says the whole process was racially charged. The problem and the reason that we resigned is because of systemic racism. That was systemic racism playing out. One of the most disturbing moments I've had in uh, the legislative process was uh, to sit down in the cafeteria, a brief conversation with a gentleman, and I said, you know, talking to folks about systemic racism, you'd think most people would understand this. And I wonder if it's equivalent to talking about global warming. And he said, no, Mark, more people believe in global warming. This is Mark Hughes, the former vice chair of the panel. He's also the director of the advocacy group Justice for All here in Vermont. Mark says a big part of the answer to Rosie's question is the fact that people are afraid to really answer it. He calls this avoidance and denial. It's just, you know, choosing not to have a conversation about it. Uh, some, you know, a lot of times you'll, you'll find in circles where these conversations come up, um, there's a, just a total sidestep. Um, and it's, it almost begs the question, but you just want people to say it. You know, is it that black and brown people are just inherently more criminal? Or is there a problem with this system? Several of the people we've heard from in this episode are also on the panel that Mark and Christine quit. Monica Weber, Brian Grierson, Gary Scott. And many current members say it wasn't what Mark and Christine wrote that was the problem, but the fact they didn't consult with everyone else. That was, of course, before my tenure. This is the current chair of the panel, Eitan Nasreddin Longo. Um, But I've been very mindful of the fact that people didn't feel comfortable with the way things were handled under the former leadership and didn't feel like they had enough of a say in what was going on. And the reason we're even getting into this bureaucratic drama is to underscore just how fraught these questions are. A panel stacked with experts was charged with addressing racial disparities in Vermont's criminal justice system, and their progress has been glacial and stymied by infighting. You know, it's, it's maddeningly slow frankly. 
And democratic process takes time. That's, it sucks. It sucks. Eitan says the panel is expanding on a recommendation that Christine and Mark made about centralizing reports of bias. And they are making progress. It's not as quick as those of us who've lived with racism for many years would like it to be. <laughs> but I do feel, yes, that it is going forward and that it is going forward well. The former vice chair, Mark Hughes, says despite the challenges, he feels momentum around these issues, too. And at a recent legislative hearing, Dick Sears, a longtime senator and chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, said it's time to confront these difficult truths. We have a problem. And what is the nature of the problem and what is the scope of the problem? And you first have to admit you have a problem in order to solve the problem. And I don't think we get it we have a problem. This is an inherently messy process. Here's Mark Hughes one more time. If we answered this question in a narrow way, I think we would probably contribute to the problem. Mark says you can study this decision point or that agency, but it'll only get you so far. That's the challenge here. It's, it's so convenient and it's so necessary to be able to neatly and, and tidily just package something in a way where we can consume it. So it makes sense. So, it, you know, there's a start, there's an end. There you go, problem solved. Let's move on to the next one. This is not one of those. Thanks so much for listening to the show this month. John Dillon reported this episode with me. You can read the many studies we've referenced at our website, bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can submit a question of your own and vote on the one you want us to tackle next. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund and from VPR sustaining members. If you like this show, consider becoming one. Our editor is Lynn McRae, and our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. Engineering support from Chris Albertine and digital support from Meg Malone. Special thanks this month to Tom Dalton, Claire Green, Drew Restley, Amanda Hammond, and Pete Hirschfeld. I'm Angela Evansy. We'll be back next month. And until then, remember, be brave, ask questions. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.